Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For today's message, I'm going to try to let the Word of God do as much of the preaching as possible. The central text for today is coming to us from the Gospel according to St. Luke, its 19th chapter. And I want you to go ahead and if you have a Bible with a Bible marker, go ahead and place it there because we're going to be doing a little bit of back and forth. One of the things that I hope to teach you in this service is the background behind what this day represents. Why is Palm Sunday meaningful? Now we have a, a, a habit of thinking that this is all about kids, that this is the day usually that we have the, the preliminary Easter egg hunt, that we have uh, children marching through the aisles, waving palm branches around, singing songs, that, um, that we have a, a day of celebration before remembering the rest of Holy Week. And again, as, as we prepare our hearts now for Maundy Thursday, for this coming Thursday's midweek service, I want to give you a little bit of instruction as to what the disciples and what the Pharisees understood about this day. Why were they so troubled? Now, if it had just been a, a, a scene set by the disciples, by the 12 followers of Christ, there might not have been a bunch of hoopla. They might have thought that it was a bit strange. But because Jesus had traveled throughout Israel, being a living example of the love and compassion of God, there were people that were now who used to be lepers going to the temple, paying the, the tax of healing, which is something that only happened twice in the Old Testament, that uh, they would probably dismiss. But now there were people who were being healed. The blind could now see. The lame were now able to walk, to jump for joy. The message of Jesus had spread out that there was something different in this man. In fact, one of the high teachers of Israel, as we've talked about earlier, a gentleman by the name of Nicodemus, uh, heard him speak, heard about the witnesses testifying to his healing ministry, and came up to him and said, what in John chapter 3? We know that you must be from God because no one can do the things that you do unless they are from God. So his ministry had had a profound impact because not only, unlike the Pharisees of the day, not only was he... Uh, illuminating the Word of God, but he was also putting it into practice in the people's lives. A God not just of love, but of mercy. A God not just of judgment, but of compassion. A God of both grace and glory. So what I want to talk to you about today, what I feel led to talk to you about today, is the scene that is unfolding as an image of the faithfulness of God, of promises being fulfilled. And we're going to begin by setting the scene as a 
what I, what I would call a jigsaw puzzle throughout the Bible. So that again, when, when, when the Pharisees get upset about something, that's your clue to pay attention as you read the Bible. Because more often than not, when we think that something is just a, a, a quaint or a curious example of, of Jesus' ministry, and the Pharisees raise a fuss about it, it's because there's something that they knew, something that the, the Bible writers are taking for granted that you, as a Christian, should know as well. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament what? Revealed. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And part of what the Gospel writers, particularly Luke, are taking for granted is that you know your book. So we see here, all the way back in Genesis, we see the beginnings of a promise that God makes at the very fall of mankind where he proclaims to the first couple, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a prophetic insight, a foreshadowing of things to come. And it's profound from us for a multitude of reasons. The first is that that God is proclaiming that the enemy will ultimately be cast down by God himself. And it will come about because the seed of woman shall be victorious. Now we need to pay attention to that. Why? Because as anyone who has gone through high school biology knows, there's no such thing as the seed of a woman unless the woman there's a child without having first, what, known a man, so to speak. So this is an identifier, a marker in Scripture of a promise yet to be fulfilled. As we continue in, the Savior that is to come that will fulfill this is also patterned after the family of Judah. This is a blessing that is offered by Israel himself to the family that would become the kingdom. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion who crouches, lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. This is the verse I want you to pay particular attention to. In fact, I'd like for you to jot it down in your notes. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. You shall have authority over the kingdom granted to you by God until God himself comes to claim it. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, in the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is another promise. He, and this is also a foreshadowing. He will tether his donkey to a vine. That's a curious thing to say about a king, isn't it? How many of you have actually seen a donkey? And I'm not talking about a mule. I'm talking about a donkey. They're not that big. They are in no way majestic. They are not something a king should ride, much less be caught dead on. 
In fact, if you ever tried to ride one, you'd have to pick up your feet because they sit so low to the ground. They are humble. So this is a very strange thing for the Bible to talk about a king. Nevertheless, it says, you will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments and wind his robes in the blood of grapes. So we're setting up an image. We're setting up a story. God is foreshadowing this person who is to come who will not only do his bidding, but be God incarnate as well. From the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, my daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, yet lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, a very, very young adult donkey. Someone who has yet to be ridden, presumably. So you see where all this is leading. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the warehouses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. This is the new king, the king who also happens to be God. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule his extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the, underline this, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit, from the cistern. He's using kind of the image of Joseph being tossed into the pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. You think of a kingdom right now as a kingdom that has defined political borders. You think of a kingdom now as a nation made up of written constitutions. But there's a kingdom unlike anything that you've ever experienced before that's coming. A kingdom that will include the entirety of this world that will have no borders. Where the law will be written on the hearts of its people. A kingdom where God himself will be the king and his dwelling will be with you and you will be his people and he will be what? God himself will be your God. Now let's look at the scene as it unfolds right before their very eyes. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany, At the hill that is called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, you, why are you untying it? Say to him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked him, Why are you untying it? And they replied, The Lord needs it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. 
What was coming together in their eyes was the fulfillment of all the years since the very foundations of this world were laid. For up until the crucifixion of Christ, all of humanity was under a curse that they could not shake. For there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of, fall short of the glory of God. Before the cross of Christ, we were the enemies of God. Paul even, the Pharisee of Pharisees, even identifies the law that was given to Moses as something that not even his fathers nor any generation that had ever come before him could fully complete. It was only completed in one person. That one person who was set up to be the sacrifice for all the rest. Sin is universal. Without the blood of Christ applied to your account, you have a lot of red in your ledger. You have a debt that you cannot possibly pay. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of... You can't work for it. You cannot earn it. It cannot be something that you accumulate in order to be a recipient of the grace of God that washes away your debt, that enables you to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You must have a sacrifice made on your behalf to take care of the debt that you yourself cannot pay. Someone else has to do it for you. Sin separates humanity from God. As, as Jesus himself proclaims in John chapter 3, surrounding the most famous verse, for those that do not receive the Son, they are condemned already. Sin separates humanity from God. Sin also binds hum blinds humanity from their condition. Paul writes that we are slaves to sin. The enemy thinks that he has won the victory with the fall because now man cannot enter into the presence of God. Why? Because the unrighteous cannot come into the presence of the righteous. So you see, we have a problem. If we cannot enter the presence of a holy God then there's only one other option. And if we can't work into heaven, what has work ourselves into heaven, what has to happen? The enemy, of course, claims this world is his. But God's righteousness again requires judgment. God's love requires a saving grace. See, this is the difference between our gods and all other gods. This is the difference between our religion in all other religions. For aside from Christianity, we have to earn righteousness. We have to earn enlightenment. We have to climb the mountain by ourselves. We have to balance the scales, but Christianity says no. Christianity says there is no way that you can ever do enough works, enough good works to balance the scales. In fact, uh, Paul himself, I believe, says that without the Holy Spirit of God, without the regenerate grace of Christ, it is impossible for us to please God. So God himself has to offer the sacrifice. God himself has to provide that bridge. God himself must send a Savior. Here's something else that we don't often talk about because we have a, a kind of an odd view of Christ as King, but God's divinity requires that he has a kingdom. Right now that kingdom is in rebellion against him. 
But who is ultimately in control? Who is the one whom we owe our allegiance to? See, the thing about Christianity that we need to proclaim is that yes, we've messed up. Yes, we don't have a means of escape on our own. Yes, we can't do the work. But we have a God that loves us to the point that he gave up everything so that he could claim us back. So that he could win the battle by loving us. So that eventually when he does come as conquering king, as judge, as ruler of all creation, there will be a segment that will accept his offer of amnesty, of grace, and that he will still have his own children, his own family, who are bought by the blood of his firstborn son, who are made co-heirs with the only begotten of the Father. Aren't you glad that you're a child of God? He who knew no sin became sin for you that you might be called the righteousness of God. There was a, a curse, but now we see the identifying of the one who is to become the king and God and sacrifice. This is something else from the scriptures that when we read through Coronation Day, Palm Sunday, we don't often consider. This is from 2 Kings. This is the coronation or the anointment of Jehu, king of Israel, the person that God was called to um, conquer over the house of Ahab. And, and I don't want to weigh you down with this bit of history, but I want you to notice the pattern by which he's declared king. The prophet Elijah comes to him and anoints him to be king over Israel. He proclaims his, his mission. And after the prophet leaves his side, this commander of the armies of Israel, in verse 11, when Jehu went out, from his, uh, went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, is everything all right? Why did this maniac, calling the prophet a maniac, mind you, why did this maniac come to you? You know the man and the sorts of things he says. Because again, this was a prophet that kept complaining about Israel's unrighteousness, about uh, Israel's lack of judgment and lack of, of justice. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Notice what they did. What is the reaction after the prophet anoints their commander as king? They quickly took their cloaks off and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. How many of you knew that? In the near eastern community that was Israel, when you had a cloak on, that cloak and, and the colors arrayed on it were your, uh, effectively your status symbol. They identified your family. They identified your authority. They identified you as a person. It was kind of like a combination uh, passport, driver's license, and credit card. Everything that you were, were was vested in your cloak. That's why when uh, when Joseph gave the cloak of the coat of many colors, when Jacob gave the coat of many colors to Joseph, excuse, uh, excuse me for getting tongue tied, they were all upset because effectively he was giving the whole of the family over to him. 
and for you as, as the leader of your house, as the leader of your tribe, for you to take off your cloak and put it underneath the king meant that you were submitting yourself to his rule. This was a coronation act. I want you to bear that in mind when we continue to read in Luke that they brought the, when they brought the cult to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on the cult and put Jesus, they put Jesus on it. This is not just them uh, uh, improvising a saddle. This is them offering him, through the influence, I believe, of the Holy Spirit, a coronation himself, one that was public, one that was in the Pharisees' sight. They were identifying him as the new king. This is why they got so upset. Rome can't handle this. Rome will send its armies after us. Not, not to mention the fact that you claim to be God made flesh. This cannot be. The Pharisees get all upset because Jesus was in fact declaring himself Messiah. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people, the crowd that was gathered around him, spread their cloaks on the road as well. We're talking thousands of people in procession. The whole city was troubled the same way it was in Christmas when it came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God and in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that the whole city had been troubled before? Some of the Pharisees, again, whenever we are about ready to skip over something important, the Pharisees run to our rescue. Verse 39, when some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus retorts, I tell you, he replied, if they get kept quiet, the stones would cry out. There's a way that we've been interpreting that one too. Here, the prophet Habakkuk had cried out to God, Jerusalem is corrupt. The people of Israel have forgotten the word of God. God tells him, I'm going to send Babylon as my instrument of judgment. Habakkuk gets even more upset. Babylon is worse. God replies, I know their sin. I know their corruption. I know their bloodshed. And in the book that bears the prophet's name, second chapter, verse 9, God himself speaks to the prophet, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. You have a choice. We all have a choice. Jesus is reminding them. 
We, we have a really bad habit of reading on a surface level, not knowing the Old Testament. We assume that when Jesus says the very stones will cry out, it means that they will cry out in acclamation and praise. But instead, Jesus is hearkening back to the Old Testament, hearkening back to the prophet, saying to the very people who did build their houses from corrupt gains, who did acquire things at the spiritual cost of the people of Israel, he says, if they did not accept God by praise, then the stones will cry out in God's judgment. So we all have that choice when the king comes. We all have that choice when the king comes. When the king comes to us, we can choose praise. We can choose praise. Or we can choose his judgment. What do we choose? when he appears to us and in the gospel convicts us of our fallen condition, when we feel the sinking cross-shaped hole in our hearts, knowing our need for a savior, do we sit back in the pew and choose judgment? Or do we lift our voices and move our hands and feet in praise. The first act of praise is the first act of obedience. God, forgive me, a sinner. Christ, forgive me, a sinner. I accept your sacrifice. I accept the power of the Holy Spirit to change my life. Change me as you will. As he approached Jerusalem, and he saw the city, he wept over it. This is his coronation day. This is the day where the, where, where the 70 weeks of Daniel, the promise of the coming king, the end of sin and the beginning of forgiveness, this was the day. And as he approaches the city, the capital, he weeps. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden for your eyes, from your eyes, excuse me, that's your spiritual blindness because of sin. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He's forecasting what would happen with Rome through the general, uh, general Titus in 70 A.D. They will dash you on the ground and your children within your walls. They will, not find, they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What is the verdict on our hearts? The fact that sin exists requires God's judgment. The fact that God is a loving God requires that he provide a saving grace out of his love for you. The fact that God is sovereign, that God is holy, requires 
him to be king. This is from Daniel 9. Knowing and understand this, from the time the world goes out to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed run, the ruler comes, there will be 77, 70, uh, excuse me, 70 weeks of years in some of your translations. And 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with the streets in a trench, but there will be times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. Verse 26, underline that in your copy of God's Word. The anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the, the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolations have been decreed. It's the last prophecy highlighting this day of days. The Savior that you have been praying for, that you've been calling out for, will appear before you this many years to the day after the decree has gone out to rebuild Jerusalem. But the Savior that you call out for will be different from what you expect. He will be cut off. He will humble himself to death the death on a cross. And then a period of judgment will come. That's what Daniel is setting up. And that's what we're seeing happen here as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because the stones cried out when the people of God did not accept him. Do we accept him? King, God, sacrifice. Do we accept him in all of those ways? Prophet, priest, and king. Do we remember how he came humble and lowly? Teaching with conviction. Showing God's grace, love, and mercy. To raise up a family that he calls the church. Do we accept not just his mercy, but do we accept his lordship as well? Understanding that obedience comes at the cost of our ability to say no. Do we choose to be the different people, the royal priesthood? If Christ were to return, how would we receive him? Would we receive him as king and God and sacrifice the reason of our salvation? Or would we do as he did and see the temple that is the church thrown down stone by stone so that they cry out in disobedience? I will leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul as he comments on this very scene. The book of Philippians, Philippians, excuse me. Chapter 2, starting with verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross, a cursed death. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place because of his obedience, because the same man who knelt and sweat and cried drops of blood, who said three times, let this cup pass by me, also said with every request, not my will, but what? Thine be done. Because of his exact obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. His coronation day in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess, shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this to the glory of God the Father. We today still have that choice. How do we accept our Savior? Do we accept the King with the honor and the dignity and the obedience that he deserves, knowing that he didn't hold anything back, but he gave his all for you? Do we accept him with praise, with adoration, or do we hold it back, dig our heels into the ground, Allow ourselves to look just like everything else in this world. And upon ourselves, await his judgment. Don't be the Pharisees. Don't be the legalists. Don't be the deniers that are upset at disturbing the status quo. Don't be those who shrink back when they see this world is going straight into the enemy's hands. You are the army of God, the messengers of hope, the bringers of justice and peace. You are the people that call others out from the slavery to the enemy to the freedom of he who saves us. Accept him with praise. Hail him as the triumphant king that he is. Welcome him both into your heart and into every facet of your life, knowing that he loves you and will not let you down. And all God's people said, and Heavenly Father, as we end the service of the word. I ask that for those that have yet to receive you in their hearts with songs of praise, with palm branches lifted in triumph, with shouts of, of Yesu Hosanna, Savior, save us. Lord, that even now they would come to you they would rejoice that the Savior is also the King. 
they would accept your sacrifice and that your praise would be on their lips. Save those here in our hearing, in, in the sound of your message. Draw to salvation any who have yet to come to know you in the free pardon of sin this morning. Or for those that require a special touch, a special prayer, a special blessing of the Master's hands to know that their God loves them. Lord, whatever the need on any heart is, as we transfer now to the time of invitation, bring to your table, trouble their hearts, and let them know the boundless love that you have for them. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.